This is Our American Stories, and every once in a while, it's important to dig down deep and bring you the stories that affect your lives, the kind of stories that matter to you the most. In this groundbreaking journalistic endeavor you're about to hear, our executive producer, Jesse Edwards, will shake America to its foundation with his profound and timeless retrospection into the time and lives of the Internet of Things and the Internet favorite, Talking Cats. Test one, two. Testing one, two. Every once in a while, we like to treat ourselves to the nonsensical musings of the common domestic house cat. Like this little guy, for example. We think he has rabies. You probably don't want to touch or go near a cat that sounds like this. But kids love talking cats. Like this little guy. He sure doesn't like to be pet. Our cat's fun. What lovely house pets. Like this little psycho. He's screaming the word no because he doesn't want to take a bath. Pure nightmare fuel. And this is perhaps the world's most famous talking cat. He's known as the Olong Johnson cat. Let's listen to what he's saying. Oh, my dog. Oh, Long John. Oh, Long Johnson. Oh, Don Piano. Why I eyes you. All the live long day. And last but not least, there's this creepy little guy known as the ISIS terrorist cat from deep in the heart of Syria. And this has been Talking Cats on Our American Stories. And thank you for that report, Jesse. That's very good. Very serious. (laughs) By the way, we love shifting moods and themes, and from that serious report to an even more serious report, the man who's been delivering us inspiring fortunes that come from the inside of fortune cookies is nearly out of ideas. For 30 years, Donald Lau has served as chief fortune writer at Wonton Foods, which builds itself as the largest manufacturer of fortune cookies, noodles, and other Chinese staples in the world. Now, he's stepping down. Why? He's got writer's block. But not all hope is lost. When Donald Lau bought the Wonton Food Factory in the 1980s, he started writing fortunes to go inside the fortune cookies. And now, decades later... He's passing the baton to his son, James Wong. Here's Donald and his son, James, talking about this peaceful exchange of power. When we bought the factory uh, back in the mid-80s, we decided to update the fortunes. And since my English was uh, the best among the group, uh, I was given the job. I guess I got the job by default. Writing fortunes was never uh, part of my career projection. I'm Don Lau. I've been with uh, Wonton Food for oh, more than 30 years now. My dad was with the company. Uh, he's now retired. So I would come around to the factories when I was at a very young age. That's how I got to know the business, basically just spending time there. My name is James Wong. Um, 
uh, role I have many. I'm in charge of overseeing IT, purchasing, and of course, fortune writing. Well, in the old days, uh, all the fortunes were um, the horoscope type uh, fortunes. Uh, uh, you will do this and this, you will meet uh, that person, uh, you will find love, uh, things like that. But over time, we've introduced some Chinese philosophy and uh, humor into the uh, fortune cookies. This role is kind of coming more prominent for me because Donald is saying that he should hand it off. Well, I'm getting uh, a writer's block more often, so that's why James is, uh, will be helping out and uh, he'll be taking over the responsibility. Me and Donald always joke around with the fortunes that it, that's in his head that he's thinking about. Uh, eventually, I kind of fell into the role. Fortune writing is the, the, the most fun of all the jobs that I can think of in the company. And usually, the inspiration would come from people around me. And also, there is definitely some type of philosophy that you need to keep in mind. Fortune cookies reaches everyone. A lot of times, I think about my daughter uh, and what kind of advice that I would give her. Failure is the mother to success. There are legal concerns whether we might risk a chance of getting sued. And it was apparently read by someone that is having trouble with the marriage. The husband is about to go off on a business trip. He was in a Chinese restaurant with his wife and got his fortune cookie. The message read, romance is in the air in your next trip. The wife got very upset and decided that it's our fault. There is a risk with anything that we write, but we still need to keep a positive attitude about it. There's a sense of seriousness in the office, and uh, fortune writing is definitely the outlet for our sense of humor. My daughter uh, became a doctor, and I asked her, uh, why do you want to be a doctor? And she said, I want to make people feel better. So I came up with a fortune that says, want to make people feel better? Forget med school, go into comedy instead. Your fortune, it's complicated. <laughs> I came up with one which will not be in the uh, fortune. Don't run for president. You're not a good liar. And another one, uh, you know that most fortune cookies are eaten in Chinese restaurants. You are what you eat, but you still don't look Chinese. <laughs> Come more often. <laughs> you will soon become such a VIP that the NSA will listen to your phone calls. We try to be humorous keep things a little lighthearted. And this is Lee Habib talking cats, fortune cookie writers. And by the way, Wanton Food makes a staggering 4.5 million cookies each day in their Queens, New York factory. Great job on this, Jesse, as always. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Story. I could escape this feeling It's my channel. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. 
And now it's time for our This Day in History series, brought to us, as always, by the great folks at Hillsdale College, the best place in America to learn about our nation's history, the Constitution, and great literature. And speaking of great literature, today we bring you the life of a great literary figure, a public school teacher turned Pulitzer Prize-winning author, and at the age of 66 years old, no less, and with his very first book. The book, Angela's Ashes, and the author, Frank McCourt, who died on this day in history in 2009. By the way, McCourt was a teacher in New York City's public schools for the longest time, and no one had ever heard of him. But this book came out of nowhere. It had a voice like nothing you'd ever heard. And if you're familiar with Irish neighborhoods and you're familiar with that Irish brogue, this story takes place, well, a lot of it is set in a really tough, tough neighborhood in Ireland where Frank McCourt grew up. So let's go back to where it all started, a childhood filled with fullness, the fullness of life, and also the extremes of life. My father would ruin the whole thing with his drinking. And there was kind of a dramatic element to this. The men got out of work out of the factories and the timber yards and the cement factories at 5.30. They would come home on Friday night, most of them, wash themselves to here, from here to here, never below. No, people didn't touch themselves with water from one end of the year to the other. They'd come home, wash their hands, throw water on their faces, have their Friday night tea, which was an egg, because it was Friday, and... uh, and then the, the, the women would give the price of a few pints, and they'd go out and they'd have a few pints, talk, sing a few songs, come home, have tea, go to bed, and go to work the next morning. 5.30 they were out. Six, by 6 o'clock, most of them were home for that wash and that tea. But my mother would wait on tenterhooks. If he wasn't home by 6 o'clock, boom, boom, bong, bong, all around the city. If he wasn't home by the time the angels rang, he wasn't coming home. And then she'd sink deeper and deeper into the chair by the fire because we knew then the wages were gone and he'd arrive home after the pubs were closed, roaring and singing down the lane, Roddy McCauley goes to die and all the patriotic songs. He, he, he grieved over Ireland and didn't care if we starved to death that night and the next day. So that, that, was the, uh, that was the kind of atmosphere I grew up in. Poverty, alcoholism... Fear of the church, fear of the school masses, fear in general. But at the same time, when we get out of school, when we were away from the church, when we were out of the house, we were on the streets and we were always excited. And when you have nothing, little things become very precious, like books. There was an occasional book came into our house and we, we, just, we just devoured it. In that sense, it was very rich. His hometown of Limerick didn't have a library that children could use leaving the prose of the church as the main literature in their lives. McCourt said that his literature was so scarce that he could sort them out in his memory, his encounters with literature. He attended government schools, but his education stopped when he was 13 because high school wasn't an option for kids like him, kids who couldn't afford shoes. His family was that poor, and the teachers that he did have, they were poor too, so poor in quality that they would literally rough up their students. It didn't happen to Frank because he was a good student, but his teachers weren't exactly thrilled with a troublemaker like him, especially one of the brilliant kind. Here's a scene from the movie adaptation of Angela's Ashes where he interacts with just such a teacher as he reads his all-too-original essay to a class. The title of my composition is Jesus and the Weather. What? Jesus and the Weather, sir. All right. Read it. 
I don't think Jesus, who is our Lord, would have liked the weather in Limerick, because it's always raining and the Shannon keeps the whole city damp. My father says the Shannon is a killer river because it killed my two brothers. When you look at pictures of Jesus, he's always wandering around ancient Israel in a sheet. It never rains there and you never hear of anyone coughing or getting the consumption or anything like that. And no one has a job there because all they do is stand around, eat manna, shake their fists and go to crucifixions. Anytime Jesus got hungry, all he had to do was to walk up the road to a fig tree or an orange tree and have his fill. Or if he wanted a pint, he could wave his hand over a big glass and there was the pint. Or he could visit Mary Magdalene and her sister Martha and they'd give him his dinner, no questions asked. So it's a good thing Jesus decided to be born Jewish in that nice warm place because if he was born in Limerick, he'd catch a consumption and be dead in a month and there wouldn't be any Catholic church and we wouldn't have to write compositions about him. The end. Did you write this composition, McCord? I did, sir. I did, sir. But as is the case with so many of our lives, there was this one teacher, one teacher who changed his life by telling him that he was a literary genius, and you could hear it right in that reading, folks. And here's the portrayal of that teacher, Mr. O'Halloran, in the movie, too. Stock your mind. It's your house of treasure, and no one in the world can interfere with it. Fill your mind with rubbish, and it'll rot to your head. You might be poor, your shoes might be broken, but your mind, your mind is a palace. And indeed it is. Here's Frank McCourt himself on why he was drawn to writing at such a young age. I think I was always attracted to writing, always wanted to write, because for me it was magic. To get a piece of paper and put words in it, to put together words that were never before put together by anybody, to take two words that were never joined together like uh, like uh, uh, a scintillating turnip. I would put words together like that just to keep the language fresh. And I was When I was nine or ten, I was trying to write a detective novel an English detective novel, set in London, which I'd never seen. All I knew about London was what I read, an English detective novel. So I was always up to something like that and writing little playlets that made my brother's actor. I wrote one play about how my youngest brother, Alfie, who was one year old, one year old, was lost. And we, if we did lose him. He was only one, and there was a, a, a nail on the wall, and we hung him on that nail by, by the back of his shirt. And we did our play, and then we forgot about it. My mother came home, she says, where's the child? We couldn't remember. Where, we, where did you put him? Couldn't remember, but we found him hanging on the wall. I think he's been damaged by that ever since. But I would go on writing stuff like this. And Mr. O'Hallon used to take my compositions home and read them to his kids who went to private school. So I was always scribbling. Always scribbling indeed. McCourt didn't have a high school education, And he struggled in Ireland, wasn't sure what to do there. And like so many young men and women, they did what they thought was the only thing they could do, come to America. Well, when he got here, well, the immigrant dilemma hit him hard. I didn't know what to do with myself. I didn't know how to find the door into America. Here I was, uh, I didn't know anybody. Uh, So I was mostly alone and uh, floundering. And then I had to deal with something else that, that, that people rarely talk about. It's an ethnic story in a way, but uh, I had the English language, 
other people come from Italy and Czechoslovakia and places like that, and they have to grapple with America, and they have to grapple with trying to get the uh, master the English language as well. But at least I had a language, so that made it fairly, that made it more convenient for me. But the minute I open my mouth and they say, oh, you're Irish. They say, what you should do now is join the cops. And I didn't want to join the cops. <sighs> Suddenly I'm labeled. I wasn't a human being. In Ireland, I was just a, a low-class type. But here I'm a low-class Irish type, an Irish low-class type. So I didn't know. I had not, I, somehow I had to deal with that. Oh, you're Irish. And at that time, that was 1949, there was still some kind of a lingering residue of prejudice against the Irish. People used to tell me, all the people that up and down New England and in New York, there would be signs saying no Irish need apply. And even the Irish Americans would, would t- listen to me and they, they patronized me. I was a bit simple as if I had just come off a farm. And I knew better than that. I knew I was better than that. The people who, Irish Americans who were running elevators and, and, and working as porters, they were looking down at me. And I knew then that I was, again, at the bottom of the heap. And uh, I, I, was, I was confused most of the time. I never felt, I never, I never had anything but the dream of getting out of this, that I wanted to be something else, and, but I didn't know what, there was no clear-cut dream. I thought I'd like to have a job, a decent job in an office. I'd like to be in an office, sitting behind the desk, pushing papers around, making little decisions about pushing papers, get out at five o'clock, meet this gorgeous girl, and we'd probably get married and have two and a half kids and live out in Long Island or someplace like that. And I'd go to Mass every Sunday morning. I'd be nice and warm and clean, and I'd be accepted, and I'd lose my Irish accent, and I'd sound like James Cagney. More of this great voice, the voice of Frank McCart, author of Angela's Ashes and Died on this day in history in 2009. Frank McCart's story, here are now American stories. American Stories, the story of Frank McCourt continues, and Frank was floundering in the United States, and then came the Korean War and his service in it, which granted him access to the GI Bill and that education he craved for that he never got at home. And by the mid-1960s, he had a bachelor's and master's degree, and one day, while in a class at NYU, he got a taste for how he could go about making a living, becoming a writer. We were asked to write about a single thing, an object in our childhood. And the object that meant most to me, or that that was so significant, was the bed I slept in with my brothers, all four of us. This half acre of a bed with with, with a disaster of a mattress, which collapsed in the middle. Everybody peed in the bed, so the spring was gone. And we tried to keep it together with bits of string, but after a while... 
the acid from our bodies rotted the string. We'd get into bed, we roll into the middle, the four of us, and fight, get on my way. Now, meanwhile, the fleas were feasting on us. And if you want, if you had to, if you had to go to the John, you went to a bucket and so on, came back. And we were up, we'd light a candle to get at them, and we'd hold the candle, and we'd, we'd go at, at, slapping at each other's legs and bodies, killing the fleas. That was the, probably the most concrete image I brought away from my childhood, and I wrote about that. And the professor said, give me an A+. Plus. I said, Jesus, this is very strange. And then he says, please read this to the class. And I said, no. Would you, no, would you please read I said, no, and I'd be ashamed. And he read it. He said, do you mind if I read it? So he read it to the class. And I think they sensed that I was the one who wrote it. And good-looking girls started looking at me in an interested way. I thought they'd be, I thought they'd be disgusted. But uh, I found myself being stopped leaving the class. I thought, is that how you grew up? And there were, they seemed, I seemed to suddenly become a kind of an exotic in the class. So that was, that was a turning point. One little thing can change the course of your life or can change your emotional landscape. It would still take Frank McCourt 30 years more to write his first book, Angela's Ashes. In the meantime, he dedicated himself as a high school teacher in the New York City public schools. And his very first teaching job was at McKay Vocational High School in Staten Island. And, and I was thrown into this, as I told you before, I had no high school education myself. I had never been in a high school, so I had to, uh, I was, th- nobody told me what to do. They just threw me into the, into the classroom. And here I was in front of these American teenagers who were a species from another world for me. Tough kids who were not a bit interested in what I had to say. So I had to hook them. I went into the classroom as a, uh, my only models were Irish schoolmasters. Uh, and I thought I'd go in there and I'd roar at the kids in, in McKee Vocational High School the way the masters roared at us. Didn't work. Yo, teach, why are you talking like that? At the, and they were talking to me. I'm the schoolmaster. Yo, teach. And I, I had to stop this. I had to find some other way of, of, of dealing with the kids, of running the classes. And I found eventually the only way to deal with them was to be honest and not to take it personally when the kids would, would erupt. And, you know, you know when you have uh, uh, 150 or 170 high school kids every day, there will be eruptions and they get angry and they direct it at the teacher, but it's not at the teacher. It's something they, they brought from home. You know, you can get all psychological about this, but I learned not to take it personally. I learned not to be, not, not to be quite impassive over it, but to understand what was happening in the classroom. That was the beginning of my education. I learned to drop the mask. And I became, really, I became a human being in front of those classes. Because I wasn't, I was a kind of a, I was a kind of a, 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 a stick of dynamite when I came to New York and when I started out as teaching. It took me a long time to, to come to grips with myself. Never mind the kids. So he's a public school teacher whose teaching is improving, but Frank McCourt was still unhappy. Before that, I had been, I'd worked in warehouses, I had worked in the docks, I'd done all kinds of physical work, but I was never so exhausted as I was after a day at McKee High School. I used to go home and throw myself on the floor without benefit of pillow and just throw myself on the floor 
and lie there for two hours to physically and emotionally recover and dread it going in the next day. So, but there was something again that happened again. One morning, I was taking the train from Brooklyn into Manhattan where I got the ferry to go up to Staten Island. And I was getting off the train at Whitehall Street, stepping off the train and onto the platform. And this thought came into my head. You could decide today to be happy. <laughs> you could just make a decision instead of going in fear and trembling into the classroom. Now, it's easy to say that, and it doesn't always work, but I, I realized that I was resisting some kind of gloom gravity that most of us, uh, most of the time, we look on the dark side, but you have to work at lifting yourself up. And I tried it that day. It was the beginning of that kind of practice. So I tried, then I realized if you don't enjoy yourself in the classroom, get out. It would have been easier for me to do what my three brothers did, go into the bar business, go up there and meet glamorous men and beautiful women on the east side and stay out all night drinking and have brunch with some long-legged creature from, from Boston. No, and I, I thought of that. But then I thought of the kids in the classroom and uh, that, there was something more appealing about that. And besides, I wanted to get through. I wanted to get through to them and I, I, wanted, to, I wanted things to click. And, and sometimes in a, there's something that happens in a classroom that I know actors experience and artists in general. There's some time when you make a breakthrough and there's some light goes on. One, one day in, in, in McKee, I made a breakthrough of some kind. And for me, there was a kind of a white blazing light in the room. I said, Jesus, this is absolutely orgasmic in an intellectual and emotional sense. And I knew then that what I did was to tell, the, we were dealing with a poem, uh, and it was called, the poem was called My Papa's Waltz. And, you know, you're always told, look for the deeper meaning with the kids, and then there would be a test. But I said to the kids, let's get inside the poem. What's going on in here? And that was a huge, there was an explosion for me at that moment because we were doing it together. I wasn't the teacher anymore. I know everything, and you're just out there. I'll tell you what you need to know. You tell me what's happening. Tell me what's going on in here. I think that colored my whole teaching career. Because as Dylan Thomas said, a job is death without dignity. And I didn't, want to, I didn't want that kind of life. I had to go into the classroom and enjoy myself. And I'd say to the kids every September, by the end of this term, there's one person in this class who will have learned something, and that would be me. And I have to enjoy myself. I told them, I have to enjoy myself here. I have to do it. You'll be graduating and I'll still be here. And I'm not going to wither on the vine. I'm not going to be old Mr. Chips. <laughs> I'm going to swing. <laughs> McCourt went on to teach at three other public schools, but he had trouble sticking to the curriculum in all of them because of one relentless personality trait. I read an essay a few years ago by Jonathan Swift on digression. You should all read it because in this country, there's too much sticking to the point. And that's the difference between the Irish and the English. And this is another digression. The, the, <laughs> that an Englishman in love will say, darling, I love you. Will you marry me? Simple. The Irishman, however, says, Mary, how would you like to be buried with my people? <laughs> that's the difference. 
McCourt became world famous, but here he is talking about that fame. The same voice before he was famous, the same after. I'm here because I wrote a book. 27 years as a teacher, nobody paid me a scrap of attention. Then you write a book about misery, and everybody pays attention, and they ask you for your opinion on things. I've been asked for my opinion on everything. I've been asked to write for various magazines just because I wrote this book. I've been asked to write for Gourmet magazine. And I grew up on bread and tea. The life of Frank McCourt, his story, here on Our American Stories, this day in history, in 2009, McCourt died. our American stories and from time to time our own Jesse Edwards finds something for us that is so compelling, so good so spiritually good that we must take the time to sit back, close our eyes and follow him on a journey of self-discovery and enlightenment join us now as we travel to the farthest corner of the earth on an epic expedition of contemporary art It was the tallest man-made structure in the world for more than 3,800 years. What is it about this shape, this basic yet elegant, powerful structure that has inspired awe in the hearts and minds of humankind for so many thousands of years? Time after time, we see this structure assembled in all corners of the earth, from the Mayan and Aztec pyramids in Central and South America to the Yasin pyramid structures in China. Even in North America, from the Luxor in Las Vegas to the Bass Pro Shop in Memphis, Tennessee, this enigma continues to baffle scholars and the common man alike. Even on this very day, a dedicated team of dreamers is planning to erect the next symbol of ancient knowledge and mysticism known as a pyramid. This time, it won't be created using stone or glass. This time, the timeless structure of the pyramid will be crafted using a massive collection of VHS tapes from the 1996 romantic comedy Jerry Maguire. Starring America's favorite midget Scientologist, Tom Cruise. Who's coming with me? Cuba Gooding Jr. A real man would not shop Pootie from a single mother. And Renee Zellweger. You had me at hello. Hi, this is Jesse Edwards for Our American Stories. And what you just heard is it's completely true. Uh, there are some people who are seriously planning on building a giant pyramid made out of thousands of old VHS tapes of Jerry Maguire. I, I first heard about it uh, a few years back, and then it just kind of disappeared and I forgot about it. Until I recently came across headlines of a pop-up video store in Los Angeles 
that had nothing but thousands of Jerry Maguire VHS tapes on the walls, along with Jerry Maguire posters, Jerry Maguire playing on the TV screens, and uh, they even had uniformed employees running the store. It is a video store made entirely of Jerry Maguire videotapes. We get so many different types of people coming in. I've had kids come in who have never been in a video store before, and this probably will be the last video store they're in. I think this, this video store can really, really make it in this town. It's uh, very timely, the idea of having just one movie to watch. I think that's really something we're looking forward to in the future. <laughs> okay, right about now is when you hear that record-skipping sound effect, and I ask, what's going on here? What's going on here? So I had to get to the bottom of this. I, I did a little digging around on the internet, and it turns out the guy behind this project is known as Commodore Gilgamesh. So uh, after some digging, I found his email address and gave him a call. He agreed to talk to us. Before we get to the Jerry Maguire pyramid, I had to find out who this guy is. My first question, so is Commodore Gilgamesh your real name? It depends on the situation, to be honest with you. I like to, uh, to change it as often as possible, so I uh, can't be Googled efficiently. His real name <laughs> is Nick Mayer. He and a few of his friends run a website called everythingisterrible.com. Everything is Terrible is a video and performance collective um, based in Los Angeles and a lot of other cities all around the country where we primarily take old video clips and re-edit them into like new psychedelic and comedy pieces that we put on the internet. So I've been doing that for almost 10 years um, and, you know, I have a history in like video and performance and stuff. So that's kind of my, my main background. So how'd you get started collecting old VHS tapes in the first place? I've always been interested in this. I was, um, I got two VCRs for Christmas when I was like 11, I think, and started copying tapes. Um, I think that was probably the beginning. I made my, my basement in my parents' house into like a video store looking thing. I collected a bunch of posters and covered them in, in movie posters and had cardboard stand-ups everywhere and had made copies of all the movies. So, um, I've been kind of on the same trajectory for a very long time. So, um, yeah, I've just always been interested in, uh, in media, and all of us in the group are, are hoarders of media and also creators. So we wanted to kind of combine our love of hoarding with our love of creating. So we kind of found the per- perfect little niche for that. So how many copies of Jerry Maguire do you actually own? I would say we have over 14,000 at this point. Um, since the Jerry, Jerry Maguire store has been open, they've been flooding in. So um, yeah, over fourteen thousand copies. We we hope to we hope to double it by the time we get to their final resting place, the Jerry Maguire Pyramid. Uh, so I imagine it's probably quite a logistical nightmare to collect and store all of that. How do you do it? It has made our lives very difficult over the years. Um, so we've been doing this for eight years, and um, we tour and we get all these tapes given to us, and we have to strap them on top of our vans and cars and go to post offices and mail them to ourselves. And we've spent thousands of dollars uh, on this project and uh, an enormous amount of time. Uh, usually they, they used to live in our homes, just like stacked everywhere. Um, but in the last few years, we've had a studio where we've been able to store them uh, and they take up a lot of space there. I think we have six pallets filled with, with Jerry Maguire's. So people mail these things to you constantly. How, how many do you think you get uh, every week? Sometimes we don't talk about this for a year or so because we forget that we're doing it. Um, so it'll slow down to a trickle of, you know, at lowest 30 to 50 tapes a week or so, and then at the highest, you know, 200 or so a week. So they're always coming in. 
So the, the obvious question, why Jerry Maguire? Why did you come up with the idea to start hoarding VHS tapes at the movie? And where did they even come from? The, the Jerry Maguire's was, it was really just the, uh, it is just the most natural way for us to get the most of a single piece of media, I think. The, there, there are many, many Jerry Maguire VHS tapes out there. They have been forsaken, and we have decided that we need to rescue all of them. So uh, purely out of the numbers is, is how we got here. We just saw them over and over again at thrift stores while we were looking for the other, um, the other footage that we use for, for the videos on our website. And we originally just started taking photos of them and then started buying them and eventually put a call out on our website and in our live performances that we wanted all of them and we needed help. So that's really when it took off. Just all of our fans would not stop buying them and bringing them to us. And that's where they've all come from. Now tell us about the pyramid that you're building with these 14,000 plus copies of Jerry Maguire on VHS. In our efforts to save and preserve these artifacts of our culture. Um, we are working with a team of, of engineers and architects to construct a tomb that will be in the desert far away from our cities and, and towns and whatnot so, so as to protect them, uh, where all of the Jerry Maguire VHS tapes can live safely um, long after we're all gone from here. So um, we, that's what we're doing right now, and that's why we're asking everyone to to mail us uh, copies of Jerry Maguire or bring them to our shows and also to help out financially to help build this thing because it's literally the most important thing that any of us can be doing right now. <laughs> Is it going to be like an attraction people can actually go and see with the family? It's or? going to be an attraction, um, but one that it takes uh, a little bit of work to get to. We're not going to hide it from anybody. We're going to make it very clear where it is, but you're going to have to get there. It's, it's going to be a little bit of a pilgrimage. It's important for people to be in the presence of this many Jerry Maguires, and it's important <laughs> for them to, uh, you know, experience the, the journey to get there also. So you set up a mock video store in L.A. Uh, full of these tapes for sort of what, a, a performing arts installation? Tell us about it. When we were collecting Jerry's, as we, we lovingly call them, um, we've just joked about all the many things that we could do with them. And the thing that just kept coming up was opening a video store that carries only Jerry Maguire's. Uh, so and it, it slowly became the beginning of the end for us. So this is like the announcement of the Pyramid. We're raising awareness. We're getting people in the room to, to feel the power of the Jerry's. And uh, hopefully it's going to catapult this whole project uh, in, into, the, into the air here. How many people does it take to pull something like this off? Everything is Terrible is a pretty loose collective of five core members that have been around since the beginning and then probably like 15 others who've, who've come along and help out with specific things. Uh, but the, the Jerry McGuire Video Store, we have probably 40 volunteers working on it. How do people react to the video store? I mean, just walking down the street, you see this thing. What happens next? Half of the people who come into the store know about everything that's terrible, know about the project, and they're just so pumped. <laughs> and then the other half, you watch them walk by, and they're just like mouths agape. They stop, they kind of walk by, then they come back, and then it's great. By the end, everyone is laughing and smiling because it's kind of inescapable how silly it is to see all of them together. And that's Nick Mayer. A.K.A. Commodore Gilgamesh. He's a guy with a collection of over 14,000 copies of Jerry Maguire on VHS who's planning on building a massive pyramid with them out in the middle of the desert. Because why not? 
To find out more about the project or to donate any copies of Jerry Maguire on VHS you might have lying around in your own collection, go to jerrymaguirepyramid.com where you can also find a link to donate to their GoFundMe page. For our American stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. <laughs> Thank you for that, Jesse. And I'm, I'm feeling the power of the Jerry's <laughs> myself. There's always the whole team here. This is our American stories. Hey, we love talking about the American dream. This is one of them. The Jerry Maguire Pyramid. More after these messages once again. This is our American stories, and that's Jesse Edwards. We want more of these, Jesse. A lot more of them. stories and our crew is always looking for well different kinds of stories that interest us and make us laugh and hopefully will make you laugh or think or even cry and this one stumbled on our desk and it's called anger rooms a smashing new way to relieve stress this was in the new york times and we love getting our stories from small papers in the middle of the country and some of our great papers in some of our biggest cities and donna alexander well, she knows a lot about anger rooms, and she joins us right now. Donna, thanks for coming on. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Look, before we get into this new way to relieve stress, and I can't wait to hear it because I think we've all got it, and I think we've all got what we think are solutions to this. Let's talk about you first. Uh, talk a little bit about, we love talking to people about their parents, their family, where they were born, and how that shaped them. So share with us a little bit about those things. Okay, um, well, I was born in Atlantic City, New Jersey, uh, but I was raised in Chicago, Illinois, and I come from a military background, so um, both my mother and my father uh, were Army, uh, they're Army veterans, and I spent all of my summers in uh, New York, um, in the Bronx, so um, I kind of got a... <laughs> Uh, a taste of a lot of different cities and things, especially coming from a military uh, family. And um, when I attended school, I actually majored in commercial and residential architecture um, and graphic design and multimedia. And then later on in life, I had two kids. So I'm a mom of a daughter and a son uh, that are 10 and 12 years old. That's fantastic. And tell me about the you know, we love talking to folks who had military experience or families uh, who had a lot of military experience. I'm a, a son of an Air Force uh, officer, and I was conceived in Lackland Air Force Base and was born in Sampson Air Force Base. I mean, I figured out the chronology, and I bounced mm-hmm. around, and, and it sounds like you bounced around. What, how did that help shape and form your character? I, I love asking this question to people who bounced around a lot uh, under the military umbrella. I know that it it gave me a lot of experience and just the different um, cultures and backgrounds of of different people because, you know, from bouncing from one area to another, that means I'm going to different schools all the time, so I'm meeting people from all different walks of life. 
So, I mean, I think it just built my character and just being more understanding to people who are uh, different and have uh, different backgrounds and and uh, lifestyles. So I think it helped in that fact. And then it also gave me a, a sneak peek at um, at traveling. Um, it lets me it let me know that I like traveling. <laughs> so um, it it actually I guess played a, a nice little part in in my life. Well, and you grew up. You you spent a lot of time. You said in the summers in the Bronx. And uh, as a kid from northern New Jersey, one of the great pleasures of my life, a dear friend of mine said, "Let's go take a bike ride across the George Washington Bridge, and let's go to this place called Orchard Beach." And there was a guy named Tito Puente playing at the beach on a Sunday night. And I went there, and I was shocked to find like 100,000 people that went to this beach, Orchard Beach, every Sunday to catch some of the great Latin artists of the world play there for free. Uh, wow. did, you, did you ever have the opportunity to go to Orchard Beach? No, I haven't. I actually haven't been able to go there. Um, usually when I got to New York and I played I, Stayed right in the Bronx and then went to, you know, I just went to Manhattan, the different boroughs, and then my grandmother uh, would take me traveling with her. So then I would go to Philadelphia and, you know, South and North Carolina and things like that. So um, I didn't get to enjoy, like, too much outside of uh, Manhattan, Queens, and uh, and Brooklyn uh, when I was in New York. Well, if you ever get a chance, it still happens, and it's uh, mostly Dominican and Puerto Rican families, second, third, fourth generation, who just okay. won't move. And I think part of the reason they won't move are Sundays at Orchard Beach, and it's a delight. Everybody grills, cooks out, and everybody dances. Everybody. It's required <laughs> And it's, a, it's just a beautiful thing. Let's talk a little bit about this, this enterprise. Um, you know, I, I read this piece in the New York Times. How did, how did it come to you that there needed to be such a thing as an anger room? Um, when I was 16 and at home in Chicago, um, at the time, I want to say that was around 98, and we had a real bad problem with uh, overpopulation of our jail system. And I just figured that, I could help out in some way. And I think part of that is because I had a lot of people who I knew, friends and family members uh, that went to jail for like punching holes in walls or damaging other people's property. And I was like, well, what if they had a place where people can do that and not get in trouble for it and not go to jail for it? So um, that's kind of where the idea sparked. And then I thought that it was so good that someone else would come out with it. So I kind of left it alone for a few years and finished school. And I had moved to Dallas in 2002. And when I moved there, the idea resurfaced again. So I did some searching and no one had came out with it. So I still left it alone. (laughs) And then in 2008, that was like the last time this idea just kept popping up. And I was like, okay, I just need to go ahead and do it. So I started it out of the garage of my home in 2008. And I would invite my friends and coworkers to come break stuff in my garage for five bucks. And they started telling other people. And I started getting strangers at my house asking if that was the place to break stuff. So uh, when that happened, I knew that I had something. And that's basically how the anger room was born. Well, I love it. And when we come back, we're going to dig into the stuff people break, how you built this business and where it is now. It sounds like you're spreading out. Las Vegas and Los Angeles are on the horizon And we're talking to Donna Alexander, 
And her story from the New York Times, Anger Rooms, a smashing new way to relieve stress where people pay down a few bucks and they just whack and destroy stuff. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. You can go to Our American Network to catch all that we do. More with Donna Alexander after these messages. Yeah. stories and we continue our conversation with Donna Alexander and an article in the New York Times recently anger rooms a smashing new way to relieve stress was the headline and my goodness you've got to pick that up and read it and we just started laughing but there was something deep that was being captured here so Donna you you have your garage and people are coming in and what are they busting up in that garage um they were breaking things like TVs and computers um laptops, a lot of electronics and, uh, like stuff, animals and things like that, whatever I can find, um, around my neighborhood that we had, that we would have out for our bulk trash pickup days. And, and so this continues to happen and you're thinking, I have a business idea here. What volume of business triggered you to think I need to get a separate location away from my garage? I think I've got the demand. I think I got myself a business. Um, I want to say is that I know is the day that the stranger came to my door and asked, was this the place to break stuff? Um, because before then, I didn't have a problem when it was just like a lot of my friends and coworkers, and they would come all the time. So it kind of turned into like almost a traditional thing at my home. But when the strangers started popping up, I'm like, okay, you guys are telling other people, but other people are interested. So um, that's kind of when I knew that, hey, I may have something here just because I have strangers coming up, and I, it turned out that I did. So. And do people bring their own stuff to break, Donna, for the most part? Um, sometimes they do. We don't require it because we always have stuff in stock, but they're more than welcome to bring their own stuff whenever they want to. <laughs> and so how do, how, do we, how do we get from the garage to the business? I mean, what was your business plan? Did you go to a bank to get the money? What was your first location? Talk about this first actual real toe into the real world of business, taking it away from a home business, and actually taking that risk, Donna, with your time and your capital. Yeah. um, Going from a garage to my first location, um, I kind of just, like, jumped in there and went for it. So I didn't have any uh, traditional... Uh, bank financing or anything like that. What I did is I started uh, from the background work. So I wanted to start on trademarks and patents and intellectual property. And then I worked on my business plan and came up with my own pricing because I wanted something that was reasonable and affordable for everybody in every income level. So um, it 
I wanted just to make it fair. And then once I incorporated all that into my business plan, I started to look for uh, potential locations. And I already had an idea of where I wanted to be at, so I started there. And it turned out that it was, like, too expensive at the time. So I would just search around to find somebody to tell me yes because I got a 1,000 and plus no's and lack of doors closed and people laughing and thought that it was for crazy people. So um, I finally got a guy three years later um, that was willing to sublease to me. So my first space was a little bit over um, 780 square feet, and he just let us go uh, go for it. And when we did, uh, before I even opened the doors, I had accumulated a waiting list. So I had a four-month-long waiting list. That's fantastic. Uh, yeah. <laughs> By the way, I'm a landlord. I own some commercial property. And for anybody who's a landlord out there, you're always thinking, hmm, who do I want in my space? And <laughs> I, I guess you had to be thinking, or at least the people who you were talking to had to be thinking, she breaks stuff uh, next. I mean, you know, <laughs> what if a brick goes through like the. Exactly. Exactly. So finally, you get a landlord to believe in you. You've got a waiting list. What about insurance? What are, are you able to insure this business? Oh, yeah. That was the very next thing that um, that came up. And it was funny because I thought I got I had covered every aspect of my business, but I didn't think about the insurance until I got my first landlord. And he was like, hey, you think you're going to need some insurance? And I was like, you know what? Yes, I do. So I, I searched. Uh, it only took me a few months to obtain insurance, but... Um, I was able to get us insured, fully insured, and even the insurance company, uh, when I had to explain to them what we do and how we do it, um, they were they were really skeptical about it because it was something new and not, uh, something they never insured before. So um, it just took a little bit of convincing and explaining to them how we run the business, and then they were able to uh, cover us. So, yeah, we definitely have. So, so your sales skills, Donna, went beyond selling to customers. I mean, this is, by the way, what we learn over and over again when people start businesses. The sale never stops. The selling never stops. You had to convince an insurance company to cover you. And, by the way, it turns out, Donna, we learned there had never been a category for your business before. And, as you know, insurance companies have to predict models of risk based on well, what's happened in that industry before? You are mm-hmm. actually a pioneer here, Donna. You are the first. The first. Good for you. Yeah. So now let's Thank talk you. about your expansion plans. You, you, you succeed in this first location. And where is the actual location of that first store? Um, it's, in a, it's called Richardson, Texas. It's still in Dallas, but I guess it's considered um, a suburb of Dallas. Yep. So uh, the very first location is in Richardson, Texas, uh, directly across the street from Texas Instruments. That's one of our biggest um, companies that we have here in Dallas. So we were right across the street from them. And who are your who are your clients? Talk about who are the folks who come in? More men than women? Old, young, corporate, uh, hipsters? Uh, are, are, do hipsters <laughs> have anger issues? Well, you know what? We get people from all walks of life. It is so... I think because everybody can relate to it, we it's hard for us to target down a specific demographic because we get all ages that come in, all professions, incomes, and things like that. 
Um, but I do see the majority of our customers that do come all deal with the same issues, which is um, uh, family issues and work-related issues and relationship issues. Those are like the top three. And we can get people as young as 13 coming in with their parents. And we've had people as old as 75 uh, come in and break stuff. So, um we just we just attract a lot of different people. <laughs> and do you see actual therapeutic outcomes from this, Donna? I mean, do, do people come in more stressed and leave happier? Yes. Um, it's been eight years now, I believe. So um, from all of that uh, experience and watching people come in, come out, things like that, uh, it does show uh, a lot of therapeutic value, and I get people all the time, uh, they're participating, they'll send me an email or give me a call and let me know how it affected their lives. It it even helps out health-wise because we've had people that participated and lost tremendous amounts of tremendous amount of weight uh, just for participating in the anger room. So I think it has a lot of uh, different uh, beneficial potential there. Well, Donna, tell us one of your favorite stories, if you can, from uh, <laughs> your time in, uh, running in the anger room. Um, I would have to say uh, one of my favorite uh, sessions was we had a guy that asked for an office space, and we thought it was going to be just a typical person coming in to break stuff. Well, when he came in, he actually acted out a scene, and I'm guessing that it was probably from his workplace. And he sat down, and he picked up the telephone, and he pretended like he was talking to somebody, and he got mad because um, the person didn't sell enough shares or something like that. And then as soon as he finished acting out the scene, he, like, totally destroyed the room, like, to bits and pieces. It was awesome. <laughs> That's my most memorable one. <laughs> That's great. And tell me what your plans are, Donna. You're, you're heading off to two new cities. And I assume you have to figure out which cities have a, a, an index of anger. I'm thinking that, you know, some parts of America might not have as much anger as others. But what's your goal? What, what, in your dream, in your, in your vision, in your blueprint for success, what does that look like, Donna? Um, my goal, I would love for the Anger Room just to be a household name. Um, I would like to see one in every country and every state because I believe everyone needs an outlet. Um, and sometimes uh, we need a physical outlet, something that is normally frowned upon in public, but you can actually go somewhere and do it and not worry about getting judged or uh, getting in trouble for it. So I would love to see it um, all over the place and be able to help as many people as I can as they deal with uh, stressful times and, you know, things that make people angry, uh, angry all the time. They just need a place to, to let their hair down, and that's what I want. Well, when I'm in Dallas, Donna, I'm going to come to Richardson, and I want to bust some stuff, and I want to film it. Angerroom.com. Angerroom.com is where you can go to learn more. And... We want to talk to you more, Donna, and follow this dream of yours. So you know, let's catch up in about six months, see how many more stories we've got. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. We've been speaking with Donna Alexander. The article of the New York Times, Anger Rooms, a smashing new way to relieve stress.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and now it's time for our Turning Point series, where we hear from both famous and ordinary folks about turning points in their lives, what it was, what came before it, what came after it, and where they are now. And today we're joined by Mark Johnson, who was a fundraising executive for the United Way, and one day decided to become a cop. And he was 50, 50 years old at this turning point. Mark, thanks so much for being here. My pleasure, Lee. Hey, Mark, before we get into your turning point, we ask every guest about their childhood. How did your parents and your community shape you, if at all? Where were you originally born, and where did you spend the greater part of your childhood? Well, I was... uh... I spent the greater part of my childhood in uh, Luling, Louisiana, but I was born in Kansas City, Missouri, in a home for unwed mothers. And I was adopted by my parents, who moved me to Luling, Louisiana, where they resided. And I, I spent five years of my life in Luling, where I got very fond memories of the Deep South. And then we moved to St. Louis when my father got a promotion, and I graduated high school from St. Louis. And then from there, you, you ended up being a fundraising executive for the United Way. Uh, right. How did you find your way there? And talk about that journey. Well, I went to the University of Colorado in Boulder, and I majored in English um, with, uh, I don't know, a fantasy, boyish fantasy of writing the great American novel and all that, blah, blah, blah. And uh, found when I got out of, uh, of college that... Uh, a degree in English didn't really do much for my uh, employability. And right. So I, I drove a cab in Denver. I drove a truck, ended up in Colorado Springs. And uh, uh, I, was, uh, I was a salesman, basically, with a two-state territory uh, selling French's mustard and other French's products uh, to grocery stores and supermarket chains. And... Uh, I didn't really enjoy it much. Uh, I had to be on the road all week and only home on weekends. And uh, so I, I started looking for something closer. And uh, there was an opening at the United Way. I had also done some freelance writing for the local newspapers uh, during my uh, sales career. And uh, the, the local uh, newspapers in Colorado Springs included the Pro Rodeo Sports News. So I covered rodeos and interviewed rodeo cowboys. But that wasn't very... Uh, uh, stable income. And so I was looking for something that was a real job with a paycheck and an office and that sort of thing. And there was an opening for a public relations director for the United Way, the Pikes Peak United Way. And uh, to my shock, I was hired. Um, and so that started my, my career with United Way. I didn't even, I had always thought mistakenly that United Way was all run by volunteers. It shocked me that they actually have a bare bones uh, full-time professional staff to to run the campaigns, and uh, it's a year-round job. But uh, that's how I came to the field. And after seven years at the Pikes Peak United Way, my, my boss, who was also my mentor, said, I'm going to push you out of the nest. You're ready to run your own United Way. So I activated my, my file with the United Way of America, and they hooked me up with uh, Waukesha, Wisconsin, where there was a vacancy for a, an executive director of the Waukesha County United Way. And I went there uh, and uh, worked for seven years. And I still had kind of a yearning for the Deep South because of those fond memories of my early childhood. And also the brutal winters in Wisconsin had something to do with that yearning, I think. Yep. And uh, so uh, there came an opening for a 
an executive director of the United Way of Southwest Alabama in Mobile, Alabama, and I came down for an interview. They offered me a job, and I thought, this this is the job, and I, I moved down with my family from uh, Wisconsin to Mobile, Alabama, arrived here in 1995. You'd been up there in, in, in Waukesha, and you'd been up in, and you'd been in Colorado as well, but there was this poll. What was it, Mark? What do you think it was? Well, uh, part of it was the... Uh, uh, the diversity of the city of Mobile. Uh, I lived in Waukesha County, which is about uh, 95% white, and the 5% is uh, Hispanic. And so, and then you go you go 20 minutes to the to the east, and you're in Milwaukee County, and it, there's it's very diverse, very black, but it's ghettoized. And I remembered from my my earliest memories in the South, in Luling, Louisiana, just outside of New Orleans, that there we were living chic by jowl uh, with black folks and uh and and that wasn't the way it was up in wisconsin and so you know i gotta admit my mama read me uncle remus stories uh for bedtime and that was kind of my image of the south all the hollywood stuff i knew firsthand was was bogus the mississippi burnings and all of that stuff and so i wanted to get back to a community that was uh more diverse than Waukesha, Wisconsin, and had uh, gentler rhythms and uh, uh, just a more uh, peaceful kind of uh, existence. And so that's really what drew me to the South, the diversity, the food, the culture, the music, the literature, uh, all kind of conspired to, to lure me back to the Deep South, and I've never regretted it. Well, talk about this tug towards being a cop and away from this being an executive at the United Way. What caused you to leave the United Way? Well, uh, I had been in it for counting the seven years in uh, Mobile. I had been a United Way executive for uh, 22 years and uh, had had a lot of success, found it very gratifying, uh, raised uh, over $100 million in the three different communities I had served um, but uh, something about turning 50, I don't know. I, I looked back on my life, and I thought, um, how much different? I've raised $100 million, but how much difference in those communities did the $100 million do? And by all the measures that I had at, at hand as a United Way exec on, uh, you know, uh, teen pregnancy and domestic violence and poverty and illiteracy and all those things that we raise money to try to alleviate, I didn't see a whole lot of progress in any of the communities I had served. And I really wanted something that was less abstract than raising money and funding agencies and programs. Uh, I wanted something that was more hands-on where I could actually make a difference and see the results. And I could not come up with anything more hands-on than being a cop. And I'd always... You know, I had that little boy fantasy of being a policeman uh, that had always been in the back of my mind. But as I grew older and had a family, I realized there's no way I can uh, raise a couple of kids and put them through college on a cop's pay. And uh, so I didn't do it. But then I was 50. My kids were out of college. Their college was paid for. The house we had was paid for. And I thought, you know, I might be able to sustain the cut and pay and still become a cop if I'm not too old. So I happened to know the chief of police because he had been part of the United Way campaign, uh, volunteer campaign uh, group. And uh, 
So I went by police headquarters one day and talked to the chief and said, you know, I'm thinking of a career change. And he said, great, what are you thinking of? And I said, I'm thinking of your career. And uh, he said, really? I said, my question is, am I too old? And he said, well, no, you look like you're pretty fit. Uh, and, uh, you know, if you can pass the physical, I, I think you probably would make a pretty decent cop. Why don't you give it a try? So I uh, quit my job at the United Way and uh, put my name in the hat for the upcoming police academy, and that started the whole process of uh, months of testing and background checks and physicals and all of that. And I hedged my bets, uh, thinking that just in case I don't get on with the Mobile Police Department, I have family out in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and so does my wife. So I went out to Albuquerque and also applied with the Albuquerque PD and the uh, Bernalillo County Sheriff's Office out there. Mark, hold that thought. When we come back, more with Mark Johnson, author of Apprehensions and Convictions, Adventures of a 50-Year-Old Rookie Cop. We'll hear more about fulfilling his boyhood dream of becoming a cop after this short break. This is Our American Stories. American Stories, you're listening to Leonard Cohn's Hallelujah. His career was at a low point when he wrote that song in the early 80s. His label had no interest in even releasing the track or the rest of the songs that eventually came out in his 1984 album Various Positions. The track was a fan favorite, though, but it didn't receive much love until the Velvet Underground's John Cale created a stripped-down piano version for a 1991 Leonard Cohn tribute album. But it was this cover by Jeff Buckley that Rolling Stone readers put in at number three best covers. Here is the remarkable Jeff Buckley who died of far too early and premature death.
heard there was a secret chord the day that played and it pleased the Lord. But you don't really care for music, do you? Well, it goes like this: the fourth, the fifth, the minor fall, and the major lift. The baffled king composing. Faith was strong, but you needed proof. You saw her bathing on the roof. Her beauty and the moonlight overthrew you. And she tied you to her kitchen chair. And she broke your throne. And she cut your hair. And from your lips, she drew the heart. And now we're getting down to number two. And here's the original. It's Nine Inch Nails, Hurt. And then in 1994, well, Trent Reznor remembers the first time he saw the video for Johnny Cash's cover. Tears started welling up, he said. I realized it wasn't my song anymore. Let's take a listen. I hurt myself. 
today To see if I still feel I focus on the pain The only thing that's real The needle tears a hole The old familiar sting Try to kill it all away But I remember everything What have I become? My sweetest friend Everyone I know Goes away in the end And you could have it all My empire of dirt Upon my liar's chair Full of broken thoughts I cannot repair Beneath the stains of time The feelings disappear You are someone else I am still right here What have I become? My sweetest friend Everyone I know Goes away in the end And you could have it all I don't know how you put something ahead of that. I don't think it's possible. That's our number one for the Rolling Stone readers. Well, here's the original by Bob Dylan. There must be some way out of here Say the joker to the thief there's too much confusion I can't get no relief 
And here's the number one, no need for an introduction. There must be some kind of way out of here. Say the joker to the thief. There's too much confusion. I can't get no relief. This is our American Stories, Rolling Stone Readers' Top 10 Greatest Cover Songs. Take a listen. <laughs> 